I am totally off base here, and that was horrible. I guess we're going to have to start over again. Ah, <laughs> ah lost. Oh, I'm so lost. Okay, sorry. Let's see here. all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 276 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this is the highest number of rounds in boxing history episode of the sls cast because it turns out that back in 1825, in a fight that saw Jack Jones beat Patsy Tooney after four hours and 30 minutes, the number of rounds for that fight, 276. And with that unreal number of boxing rounds information, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! Tim, Timmy, Tim, 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 Chiru, Matthew, we are now back in our natural habitats. We are. Not sitting three and a half feet away from each other across two nice, very nice, wooden TV dinner trays. <laughs> yeah, but let, let me tell you, those things haven't been used to hold a dinner uh, in over 10 years uh they're now used to hold like game boards um potted plants um a fan occasionally um that yeah so they just get used whenever we need a little makeshift table or desk they don't ever get used as tv trays anymore your wank rags you <laughs> <laughs> now going back to the pre-show uh, I mean, would would you used to eat your dinners off it while watching Facts of Life? Well, Jen and I would. We would sit in. We would make our dinner or whatever, and then go sit in the kitchen or not kitchen. Go sit in the living room and you know use our little TV trays and have our dinner and everything like that. Yeah, but uh, we wouldn't watch Facts of Life. No, no, not Facts of Life. It was whatever weird show we were watching back, or movie back in 2006, 2007, um, when we used to do those things. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but no, Facts of Life, gosh, haven't watched Facts of Life since I was like 11 or something like that. So it, you'll, you'll understand why we're talking about Facts of Life in a little bit. We're going to leave you in suspense, but there's a reason why we're discussing facts of life and, and other or different strokes. That would be another good one. Related, spinoff, loosely related, connected because of uh, the housekeeper. You mean the very nasally sounding housekeeper? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hey, we're going we're gonna to learn about the facts of life. <laughs> Did you ever watch that show? It was like short-lived, and maybe it was only on twice, but it was called The Rerun Show, and it was some kind of comedy troupe where they, you know, they resurrected all the old sets, and they just re they acted out the old episodes 
but did it very broad like like uh, a guy played that nasally loud nanny i guess and uh, th- that was pretty much the entire show i mean it was the exact script from the original show or the original episode just with people outlandishly portraying these characters no although i with a premise like that i can totally see why it only lasted an episode or two <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of people didn't enjoy seeing some of their favorite childhood shows getting the uh, David Zucker scary movie four and five treatment. It would definitely, yeah, I would not have figured that at all myself, so definitely weird. The only thing I know about the set, which is interesting that you, me- that you mentioned the set, so I was watching, maybe it was like a watch mojo video or something on YouTube because every once in a while I'll go down a rabbit hole on YouTube and somehow I end find myself watching the top 10 videos um, on of watch mojo for whatever they're doing that day. And they were talking about sitcoms that got canceled after one episode. And one of the shows that got canceled was this one about college co-eds or something. And, and it was like sorority house or something like that was the name of the show. And it was canceled like, in the middle of the first episode, it got canceled. Like the head of the network just said, just stop, just shut it down. <laughs> and they ended up reusing the set, um, for facts of life. So that, you know, because it takes place in a boarding school. So they used that there. That's really so yeah. call it. So college co-ed, that sounds like a very raunchy type of show. Yeah. It was yeah. meant to capitalize on animal house. And those kinds of movies and stuff from the time period. But yeah. So, how the hell are you? I am doing well. I, of course, if you remember, not just you, Matthew, of course you remember. uh, But to you, our favorite listener out there, uh, you know, among the interwebs? Or are you in the interwebs? Or Uh, Among the interwebs on the internets. There we go. Um, I was in Texas for a little while, and uh, two weeks, I was in Texas for two weeks. Yes, we'll say that because we <laughs> uh, we record live, of course. No, I, I went there, and it was the first time in a while where most of the time I spent there was actually with family. My nieces and nephews are getting old enough now to where they remember me. Um, they ask for me if I'm not around and they know that I am in town somewhere. They wonder why I'm not spending time with them. You know, I, I, I'm now entering guilt trip phase of being in an uncle. Really? Getting there. Slowly kind of getting there. And also, it helps out that my nieces and my nephew are freaking cute. They're adorable. That tends to happen. Especially when they have you wrapped around their finger. Oh, you think sure. it's the other way around, but they have you wrapped around their finger, faux show. Yeah, like my little niece, she loves the movie Frozen, and she acts out the beginning song where the two, their little girls, you know, they're singing, and she acts out the whole thing. Oh, do you want to build a snowman? That song? Yeah, something like that, sure. But but it's like she's you know a little two year old, a little two and a half year old, and she's acting it out. Like whenever there's a sound effect, she has a movement with the sound effect, and she runs into the other room and runs back in for a grand entrance. Especially with that "Let It Go" song, you know she has all these funky, fun moves to it. But it, it's crazy. I mean, I know my niece isn't the only 
awesome kid who can perform in such a way. But show me another kid that demands, demands for an encore multiple times. And I am having to sit there and watch my two wonderful favorite songs from Frozen over and over again while my little niece, as she's performing it. Hey, at least we're not watching Moana for the 800th time. There you go. That's That's got to be a plus. I know, yeah, of course, having the daughters here, we, we get the similar treatment. Um, except I have been on a weird 80s kick lately. And so I introduced um, my kids to uh, some new Toto music because they started singing the Africa song. And I'm like, no, no, that, that song's terrible. The song's terrible. You're not allowed to sing that song. And they're like, why don't you like that song? And I'm like, well, it's not because it's inherently a bad song. It's because people don't know that Toto has just this amazing catalog of music. And the only thing you ever hear is... Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. And I'm like, okay, so I immediately pull up my favorite Toto song, which is Hold the Line. And so now the girls have been running around singing, Hold the Line. Love isn't always on time. And they do it. They do this. This is the best part. They do it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And so, (laughs) so yeah, so they could do all that. And then, of course, so I expanded on that a little bit. And then I did, uh, You're the Best Around from Karate Kid. And now they're singing that. And then we had to watch Karate Kid. And, uh, next up, we will be watching Clue. Now they, because I did Shake, Rattle, and Roll for him, which is not an 80s song, but. It's still an 80s movie, so I'm, you know, we're working into that. Um, probably do, uh, Adventures in Babysitting in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to get them good on the music. We're going to, you know. Well, that's fun. I mean, that definitely makes them more interested in seeing some of these movies from the 80s, especially. Oh, yeah. But what's and, great about Toto is the guy, the singer, he still performs. So you could have like a little family outing there to the pavilion to see. Him play and he sounds fantastic still. That'll be fun. Maybe we can uh, have a crowd pulled up on stage moment and the kids can get out there and do the whoa, whoa, whoa if he decides to sing all the line. <laughs> uh, anyhow, we got uh, uh, something fun. We got a whole new AC system. Uh, this just, just a couple of days ago. So, so something fun nice. as in it was something fun. For your pocketbook. To get a brand new AC, AC system? Yes. I was very happy that we finally got that. Well, uh, we have a property management company, so, uh, thankfully it didn't cost us anything. But, uh, yeah, brand new exterior unit, brand new interior condenser unit, brand new furnace. Um, all of the ductwork throughout the whole house completely redone and new insulation added into the attic. So we actually walk into our house now and it's set like at 75 and it feels cool you know it's amazing it's this wonderful feeling we haven't felt it really in three years like the rains down in africa you motherfucker (laughs) that's it show's over never go that's it and that's the end of the sls feel the ac down in spring texas when you walk in it's a 75 Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I guess we still have an actual show to do. So you want to get to the show? If we must. I think we must. So let's do it, folks. It's time for the news. 
Blues. And first up from me, from Variety.com, by way of Brent Lang. The Great Disruptor. Movie Pass upends the movie business, but can it survive? Now, this is quite an extensive uh, feature piece for Variety, so I am not going to be reading this in article in its entirety. The idea behind this article is it's actually talking about um, what MoviePass uh, is doing in terms of its own success, uh, its own longevity, and what it is by product doing or by proxy doing to the movie industry. Um, we have people like... Um, Let's see here. A gentleman by the name of Andrew Hansen. That's how they start the article. It says that uh, Andrew Hansen recently did something he hasn't done since high school. He went to see Love, Simon at the movie theater twice. It says that since buying a MoviePass subscription in January, Hansen, a 43-year-old transcriber for college classes, has seen roughly a dozen movies, including all of the recent Best Picture Oscar nominees. Uh, for just under $10 a month, New York City not native can check out a movie a day at the cinema, blah, 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 blah. We already know how this works. Uh, Hansen was talking about, uh, how he's, you know, he's having to spend 16, 17 bucks on a movie and now he doesn't have to worry about that because he's paying $10 a month with movie pass. Um, and then of course, then they go into the history of movie pass, how it was 50 bucks a month. Now it's 10 bucks a month, et cetera. And how they're taking, you know, taking, movie watching by storm and uh you know they spent they talked uh, spent some time to talk with mitch Lowe, who is of course the ceo and the idea is that they're they're showing how movie pass is disrupting the industry in terms of people it, it's in terms of it's working People are going to see, are going to see movies and they're seeing more movies than they normally would, uh, and they, and more than they normally would have with it. Um, if, or if they didn't have movie pass. The problem is, and this is from, this is from, uh, the movie theaters chain, from the movie theater chain side and to a, to a lesser degree, the studio side, they're worried that by doing a Netflix approach where you pay 10 bucks a month for all this access, you know, um, when, not if, but when MoviePass ultimately fails, people will now be expecting $10 a month to go see any movie they want. And there is no way in hell that the movie theater chains are going to do that. And yet, there are small, um, there are small independent movie chains and family run chains like the Main Street Theater chain, uh, which have already started partnering with MoviePass. Um, and so now you're starting to see just this, the, the, these people who are like, no, 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 uh, let's work with them so that, uh, to help drive that MoviePass traffic to our theater specifically. Um, we want 
you know, hey, look, we want you to come here and use MoviePass. Go ahead, because it's not changing our pricing stra- strategy. Um, and what they're doing is they are cutting MoviePass a break when someone p- uh, pays with MoviePass. Uh, it doesn't cost as much as it normally would. They're also working with MoviePass in terms of making sure that the app tells people in the area, oh, hey, go to Main Street Theaters. It's right here, da 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 and helping the- drive that traffic. So at least in a microcosm, what MoviePass is trying to do is starting to work. Um, yet we're constantly seeing all these reports of how MoviePass is struggling and everything like that. Um, it's really uh, quite an interesting article, and it is a very thorough read. Um, <clears throat> and there are so many people who misunderstand what it is that MoviePass is trying to do. MoviePass is not trying to make money based on subscriptions. Um which is something that the article goes into as well. There's people, all these people keep coming back to, you know, well, $10 a month for all the movies you can watch is simply unsustainable. Uh, well, the movie pass people know that. They, that's not what they're going for. What they're trying to do is build a new way for people to go see movies. Um, by freeing up that money to go spend on concessions, um, by helping people understand who's watching movies and when and what you know, and, and at what theaters to work with that kind of stuff. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff going on here where they're able to talk about, you know, the actual metrics and the data and all that kind of stuff that they're getting to go see these movies. And it's just really a great piece, a really great piece. I am wondering though, Tim, um, I know that you have a bit of a different viewpoint, uh, professionally, are you seeing, um, in, in what you're willing to uh, comment on in any way, shape, or form, you know, are are you seeing resistance, or do you know, or do you, or you know, what's your take? Is Movie Pass just in and of itself completely unsustainable? Do you think that they're that they're that they're doing more damage? Um, by getting people used to the idea of the availability of go see a movie whenever I want for a set price. I don't know. I haven't seen anything personally, but let's look back at Netflix. Look how Netflix changed streaming. Look how YouTube changed streaming. We all expect to pay $10 for Netflix a month or $14 for Netflix, however much I pay, I don't remember, just for the streaming. And I expect to find something on there for that price multiple times per month that I will enjoy watching. Now, if I have to pay more than what I'm paying now per month, I would be annoyed. I don't even think about really using that, uh, Redbox anymore. I remember when Redbox was really cool. Um mm-hmm. Because if I want to watch anything else, I can just watch it on uh, watch it on VOD, you know, watch it on right. Voodoo, watch it on Amazon Prime. Now, does that mean I'm going to pay the two dollars surcharge to watch it in Ultimate XD, whatever bullshit? No, you know. So therefore, I'm going to substitute spending that extra money just to watch it in regular standard definition. Now, I can see all of this or that same mentality, like what you were talking about, coming into fruition with. Movie Pass, because I've already found myself getting used to using Movie Pass. I use it quite a lot. Uh, there's a landmark theater over here that 
just within the past couple weeks that you, you could actually start doing e-ticketing. And so sure. with e-ticketing, you're able to order your ticket from fucking anywhere. You don't even have to do it at the theater. I could do it at work and reserve a movie and my seat wherever I want to sit for that evening's show. And one day, two weekends ago, my movie pass didn't work. So instead of going, <sighs> okay, bum, bum, bum. well, I know, right? Well, I'm looking at the ticket, how much it normally costs, 13 bucks. And it's like, you know what? I, I'm this 13 bucks for this movie. Reach out, contact movie pass. Don't hear back from them. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go to another theater. So I go down to another theater, a new chain, just thinking maybe something is wrong with the e-ticketing at this landmark. So I go to a, a Lowe's theater. And movie pass didn't work there. And this was like a Saturday afternoon. People are using it. Therefore, there should be customer service. I don't hear from customer service for like a week. But I still paid at this other theater, I think 15, almost 16 bucks to go see this one movie. And it wasn't even the movie that I really wanted to go see for that day. Now, granted, I was refunded that money. But if anything were to happen to movie pass, say two years down the line... It's going to be even a difficult adjustment for me, <laughs> just even based off seeing a movie that I kind of wanted to see and having to actually pay for it, even though I've paid, I've used MoviePass for so many movies, you know, so far, that if I have to go back and start paying for every movie, it's going to be a little bit of a of a shock, I think, <laughs> you know, and if, it's, if that's a shock for me... I cannot imagine how much it is going to be a shock for all these other people that even just casually go see movies every month. So I, I don't know, because it, the movie pass bandwagon is thriving right now. Does the article say at all how many people actually use movie pass? Uh, they didn't go into subscription numbers for it, uh, for this particular article, mainly because they were trying to get to the heart of what it is that MoviePass is about and what MoviePass is doing to the industry. Do you think it'll be or cause a ripple effect if it were to go away? Um, I mean, do you think people would be Oh, yeah, absolutely. Arms? I mean, because they've already... The, there, there's infographics and stuff on the amount of people who are using MoviePass or whatnot. Uh, let's see here. As a matter of fact, I think... Let me see here. Pull this up. Because I tell you what, I mean, I'm seeing movies in the theater just for the hell of it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm seeing some, some more of these art housey things that maybe I would have waited to see on Netflix or Oh, my God. Rented. And that's something that I am so excited to talk about when we get to the movies. Because, well, actually, it's great. I'll talk. Having to watch, you know, movies for the show. So, movies like Isle of Dogs, which, of course, Wes Anderson and Chap Quiddick, um, I'm I'm seeing trailers. I, I happen to have gotten to Isle of Dogs and Chappaquiddick early enough that I inadvertently saw some trailers. And holy crap, the trailers were good again. Wow. Hey, where were all these trailers? Where where have these trailers been my whole life? Um th yeah, so I'm I'm liking these independent, more art house uh style trailers because they're actually better trailers so made me excited for some movies uh but yeah let's see here so from a hollywood reporter a, a different hollywood reporter article there was a scorecard in here it says uh a close look at subscriber habits and it says here that um with a changing behavior it says that movie pass subscribers are two times as likely to attend movies on opening weekend as non-subscribers uh that they watch six more movies on average in the past six months than non-subscribers 
They're more spontaneous. They are 38% more likely to decide what to see once they're in the theater compared to making up their minds beforehand. They are 83% more, uh, 83% are seeing more movies than, than before. They were subscribers. 49% are more willing to attend movies alone. Um, 49% are also saying that they are seeing movies they would not normally watch. 35% strongly agree they're more likely to see a movie despite a low Rotten Tomato score. 47% are recommending more movies to friends. 42% are going to more movies in the middle of the week. Um, it says that um, the subscribers are spending as much on popcorn and soda as other mainstream moviegoers. So now about $15 per person. But that's virtually guaranteed now. Um, and it says that more than half of subscribers who saw these movies only did so because they had movie pass. So all the money, all the money in the world, a bad mom's Christmas, daddy's home Two, phantom thread, Molly's game and hostiles. So all those, ga- all those movies, um, are examples of f- films and obviously all sorts of different genres that, um, would that these people would not have given a chance so it's clear that you know they're that that movie pass is having an effect on the industry um it says that uh favorite genres for subscribers versus non-subscribers so um like action adventure 71 percent uh say that uh 71 percent of subscribers say that they like action adventure versus 65 percent for non-subscribers um so basically 66% for suspense thriller versus 55% subscribers to non-subscribers res- respectively. So more people are willing to see these movies and tell you what they like and what they're going to see based on seeing subscriber numbers. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that is, that is real. And I don't know. I just think it's foolish. What do you, what do you think about this? I like movie pass because. I don't like spending an arm and a leg to go to the movie theater. I'm able to put up with more bullshit from audience members or even from the uh, presentation aspects, like if the sound is off or something. Uh, I'm able to deal with that more because I'm using MoviePass and, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm just wasting money on a really shitty experience. So I if, if theaters are worried about movie pass, I don't know if they're able to do this or not, but what would be great and what would keep people like me and probably even you, Matt, uh, going to the movie theater and actually paying at the box office is lower the damn price. Lower the price of the ticket to go and see these movies, especially more of these art house you know, movie theaters and whatnot, like Chappaquiddick. If I was interested in the movie, I would gladly spend five bucks. Five bucks on the movie. You know what? And if your theater is good, I'll keep coming to that theater to go see a movie for five bucks. But it has to be around like five or six bucks. Like with uh, You're Not Really Here, You're Never Really Here. I forget the name of it. But the Joaquin Phoenix movie. Like, you know, like I'm interested in it, in it but I wouldn't spend fucking $18 to go see that movie because I know it's weird and very art housey. But five bucks? Yeah, I'll go check it out even if I have my reservations. So I think that would be a great thing to help these theaters. Because I agree. I think I, don't, I really don't know how MoviePass will succeed in the long run. When that happens, I think these theaters are really going to notice a difference. You know, like they're going to notice a difference of the amount of people 
showing up to some of these art house movies at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night now, and how many of them are not going to show up to those art housey movies at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night if movie pass is not around. I agree with that. I, I will say though that I think in terms of at least trying to, at least trying to do it right, I've noticed that Cinemark has, uh, I saw the latest banner in there in, in the lobby the other day. Um, so Cinemark's plan now is it's nine bucks a month and you get one movie ticket, uh, for a 2D movie anytime once a month. Uh, you no longer have to pay online fees when you buy your tickets online, no matter how many tickets you're buying. You get 20% off on all concessions all the time. And you can also buy flat rate $9 movie tickets. And if you don't use those movie tickets, they roll over. So they at least seem to kind of have the ball rolling in trying to uh, get people to buy into something that, well, clearly they're going to be around after movie, you know, after movie pass goes belly up. But, um, and that's assuming, Movie Pass goes belly up. I, I, you know, um, it's an interesting experiment. I don't, I still don't know what the outcome is going to be, but man, if they can hang on, they, they will ultimately become the next, the next Netflix. So, uh, and people were laughing at Netflix when they first showed up. Sure. Anyway, so yeah, so, um, go ahead, uh, so, so, <laughs> so again, please, please check out this article from Variety.com. Uh, it is again entitled, uh, The Great Disruptor, Movie Pass Upends the Movie Business, But Can It Survive? Uh, and that was again by Brent Lang. Uh, what do you got there for us, Tim? So I'm gonna hit up some RIPs, uh, cause people other than Barbara Bush passed away this past week. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this uh, eBay selling or selling child actor headshots on eBay and the creepiness behind that, or maybe it being not so creepy, ah, whatever. Anyways, the first non-Barbara Bush related death via Variety.com, Milos Forman, Oscar winning director of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, dies at 86. This year's written by Richard Natal and Carmel or Carmel Dagan or Dagan. Uh, and it says this, Czech-born director Milos Forman, who won Best Directing Oscars for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus Amadeus, has died. He was 86. Forman died in the U.S. after a brief illness. His wife, Martina, told the Czech news agency CTK. She said that, quote, his departure was calm and he was surrounded the whole time by family and his closest friends, end quote. Foreman was also known for directing Hair, Ragtime, and The People vs. Larry Flint, as well as Man on the Moon with uh, Jim Carrey. Uh, Directors Guild President Thomas Schlemley <laughs> said, quote, Milos was truly one of ours, a filmmaker, artist, and champion of artists' rights. His contribution to the craft of directing has been an undeniable source of inspiration of generation of filmmakers, his directorial vision 
Definitely brought together provocative subject matter, stellar performances, and haunting images to tell the stories of the universal struggle for free expression and self-determination that informed so much of his work and his life. End all quotes there. Again, that was a Variety.com article. Milos Forman, Oscar-winning director of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, dies at 86. Next up, from Deadline.com, Arn Lee Ermey dies, actor who portrayed Sergeant in Full Metal Jacket, was 74. This here is written by Bruce Herring, and it says this, Arn Lee Ermey, who made an acting career out of his ability to bring stern military careerists to life, has died at age 74. His death was announced on Twitter by his manager, Bill Rogan. Ermey was nominated for a Golden Glow for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket, but that was only one of his many military roles. Owing to his background as a former Marine Corps Staff Sergeant and Drill Instructor, Ermey was able to project authority and resolute leadership in a number of roles. Among his many film roles was Mayor Tillman in Mississippi Burning, Bill Bowerman in Prefontaine, Sheriff Hoyt in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Plastic Army Leader Sarge in the Toy Story films, and Lieutenant Tice Ryan in Rocket Power. He also hosted the History Channel program's Mail Call, answering questions about military issues, and Lock and Loud with R. Lee Ermey, which focused on weapons. He also hosted Gunny Time on the Outdoor Channel. Born in Emporia, Kansas in 1944 as Ronald Lee Ermey, he grew up as a bit of a hellraiser. Having been arrested for criminal mischief twice by age 17, he was given a choice of jail time or the military. He chose the Marine Corps and served as a drill instructor in San Diego in the mid-60s. He was eventually sent to Vietnam and served 14 months in that country. He was later a staff sergeant in Okinawa and was medically discharged in 1972 because of injuries during his service. He later received an honorary promotion to gunnery sergeant by the Marines, and that article goes on from there. Again, that was via Deadline, Hollywood, Arlie Emery dies. And then the last passing via IndieWire.com, Vern Troyer, yes, mini-me from Austin Powers, dies at 49. This here is written by Michael Nordeen, and it says this... Vern Troyer, best known for his role as Mini-Me in the Austin Powers movies, has died at 49. A message posted on the actor's Facebook and Instagram pages confirms his passing and mentions the battles he fought throughout life, noting that, quote, unfortunately, this time was too much, end quote. He had been hospitalized earlier this month. Quote, it is with great sadness and incredibly heavy hearts to write that Vern passed away today. Vern was an extremely caring individual. He wanted to make everyone smile, be happy, and laugh. Anybody in need, he would help to any extent possible. Vern hoped he made a positive change with the platform he had and worked towards spreading that message every day, end quote. It continues, quote, Vern was also a fighter when it came to his own battles. Over the year, he struggled and won, struggled and won, struggled and fought some more, but unfortunately, this time was too much. End quote. In a potential indication of how Troyer passed, the statement mentions depression and suicide. Quote, depression and suicide are very dangerous issues. 
You never know what kind of battle someone is going through inside. Be kind to one another and always know it's never too late to reach out to someone for help. And all quotes there. And of course, that article does go on some more. Uh, Matt, is there anything you would like to say following the news of Milos Forman's Arlie Emery and Vern Troyer's passings? Um, you know what? They will. Um, I think they will all be missed. I, I am very much looking forward to being able to show the Austin Powers trilogy to my kids as they get a little bit older, you know, so, so, so it's sad that a piece of, you know, pop culture history, um, and an icon in his own right has, um, has passed away. And then of course with our Lee Emery, yeah, you know, um, 74, well, you know, that's a hell of a ride. So more power to him. I'm glad it all worked out. And, um, yeah, I mean, anytime we, we lose a filmmaker of skill, that's always, always a bummer. So let's move away from the sadness <laughs> and the tears and let's go over to potential, to potential risque actions by way of eBay, risque actions involving child actor headshots. Equally, well, actually more weird. I was going to say equally weird to the RIPs, but none of them were really weird, but very sad. Via Deadline.com, eBay removal of Justin Cooper photo brings scrutiny to mystery online seller of child actor headshots. This here is written by David Robb. It says this exclusive eBay has removed an item for sale that included the social security number of former child actor Justin Cooper, best known for his liar-liar role as the neglected son of the lawyer played by Jim Carrey. The removal came after inquiries from Deadline. The listing was posted by a mystery seller who goes by the name Love Heath, that's his username, who is eBay's number one purveyor of pictures of famous little boys. Some were as young as seven, and all of them were child actors. He claims to live in Canada, Johnny, and runs a website which also goes by love underscore health, on which he says he will be, quote, listing over 600 of these studio photos over the next couple days, end quote. His real name is unknown. He's currently selling more than 300 of them on eBay. They're called, quote, original studio agency photos, end quote, Old-school glossy 8x10 headshots of young boys, each with an acting resume stapled on the back. The going rate for each headshot and resume is $10.98, and was the one he was trying to sell of Cooper, who was 9 when the photo was taken, but is now a 29-year-old producer at Fox Sports Radio. It's not against the law to sell original headshots of children, but there was something on the back of Cooper's that is illegal to sell his social security number. And love underscore health broke the law again when he posted it on eBay. According to the Social Security Act, U.S. Code 42, Section 408, anyone who, quote, discloses, uses, or compels the disclosure of a social security number of any person is in violation of the laws of the United States, end quote. They shall be subject to a fine and imprisonment of up to five years. And under California law, it's illegal to, quote, publicly post or publicly display in any member an individual's social security number, end quote. Saying, quote, it is creepy, end quote. 
Cooper did tell Deadline, quote, It's definitely concerning that my social security number was out there. Just the way the listings are worded is creepy, end quote. The listing has been removed, says eBay spokesman Ryan Moore, who told Deadline this, quote, eBay's policy doesn't allow the sale of names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, or other personal material and information, such as social security numbers or contact information. Thanks for bringing this to our attention, end quote. And of course, Deadline did, in fact, reach out to love underscore health, but they received no uh, response. I'm just going to skip down here. Uh, Love underscore health's website lists thousands of images of child actors for sale, both boys and girls. These include headshots, posters, and pages from fan magazines. And while copyright law prohibits the unauthorized reproduction of photos, the sale of hard copies of these materials is not prohibited. And to go into more description here, the name of the photos are pornographic but many are marketed as, quote, shirtless and, quote, barefoot, end quote, celebrities when they were children. Quote, that's a thing, end quote, said Biz Parents co-founder Paula Dorn. Quote, buying and selling of little barefoot boys doesn't break the law, but it's creepy. There could be a few random fans buying these, but most likely they are pedophiles. Uh, And I'm going to end all quotes there. If you want to read more into this, do check out Deadline's article, eBay Removal of Justin Cooper Photo Brings Scrutiny to Mystery Online Seller of Child Actor Headshots, written by David Robb, posted on April 9th. Matthew, are you? You're not this love underscore Heath or health. No. No, 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 I'm not. No, but now we finally get to talk. Now we finally get to talk about why we mentioned the facts of life at oh, the yes. beginning of the show. Yes. All right. So bringing it all the way back to the beginning. All right. So okay. <clears throat> I mean, I, how many photos of the facts of life cast do you have hanging up on your wall or on your wall? Just, just Blair and Tootie because they were the hottest. No, I don't. I don't. Which ought to tell you, I don't even know the actress's name. <laughs> um. All right. So seriously, though, I am in total agreement there. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear that this is just a cheap way to for pedophiles to get in there. Um, but let's just, you know, I, I'm I'm willing to concede to the idea that that somehow, somehow, some way, I don't know what that way would be, that somehow, some way this is not sexualized. I don't know what that way is, but, but let's just, you know, concede the point for, for, for a moment, just for argument's sake. Unless it was something like you're collecting, like you're a fan of a series and then that's why you're collecting these shots. I mean, it's just weird to collect kids' headshots, y'all. It's just weird and you should not do that. And that was why I mentioned Facts of Life because as someone who is normal and doesn't watch <laughs> religiously watch uh uh shows that feature just kids um i i couldn't think off the top of my head a tv show that featured kids so i was thinking back to when i was a kid and the facts of life popped up because the facts of life are all about you woo 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 yeah I don't know. I mean, it's just, yeah, it is. It's just fucking weird. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what to say other than it's just weird. Even if you could somehow convince me that this is not a pedophilic thing, which let's face it, it is. It's just weird. There, you, you would literally, the only loophole is that, like, I'm a fan of one series, so I got this stuff because I was a fan of this one series, and you limit it to that one series. Okay. You know. The whole description of these pictures, uh, going back to this article, it's out of stock now. Oh, yeah, now like the barefoot at, thing, yeah. you know? I mean, yeah. Uh, it's out of stock now at the love underscore health website, but someone recently paid $14.98 for a 12 by 9 black and white image of a young Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. A young Leo DiCaprio listed in the catalog oh, from, as, quote... From, oh, from Growing Pains? I see, I remember he was a kid on Growing Pains, right? Was, yes, he was. <laughs> uh, but in the catalog, he was listed as, quote, <laughs> barefoot teen boy actor, end quote. And then a barefoot that image so of, quote, teen boy actor, end quote, River Phoenix, described in the catalog, quote, very rare, end quote, also sold for $14.98, and of course, we know that Phoenix passed away at the age of 23 in 1993. Yes. Oh, Liv and Maddie. I did it. I thought of a relatively recent TV series that features, well, not, I mean, I don't know. Are you they're, so they're disturbed by this? You're trying to connect well, with the young Because I had to think way. of, yes, I had to think of something more recent than fucking Facts of Life. I did, I did manage to get to different strokes before, but yeah, no, the, the kids loved, uh, Liv and Maddie. Maybe we shouldn't talk about different strokes when we're discussing pedophilia. Yeah, that's, a, well, considering they did have the, they did have the sexual molestation, very special episode of different strokes. But was, was it, a, yeah, we discussed this kind of before. Like, was it touted did, as we? being a very special episode yes, or an important uh, the episode? very special episode. Yeah, the very special episode. That was what it was about. But no, I just remember, it was just thinking, you know, because the girls loved that shit on the, the Disney Channel. And so I remember, and it was a pretty funny show. As stupid, goofy humor for Disney Channel, I did like it, sadly. Wait, what, it, wait. What? The Live and Maddie show. The Live and Maddie show. The show that I was thinking of trying to relate to today. I, I, you know, I'm trying to be hip. I'm hip. I'm with it. I'm cool. I miss the rains down in Africa. That's like our safe word. Uh, whoa, no, whoa, not safe whoa. word. Wait, is that a call a safe word? No. No, that is not a safe word. Well, it's our um, it's our song now, I guess. Yeah. No, like like if you ever you know like if you're in a in a James Bondy or Mission Impossible type of situation, you have like a word to like you say something. So the other person in your party, once they hear that, they know something's going on and they have to leave. Safe oh, word is the like sex an abort, thing. Like, like like the abort the the abort code or whatever. Yeah. That that's our new abort code is ah, Africa. Okay. Very good. Okay, we, yeah, they're they're fucking weird, and I'm glad it's <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it was caught and been seemingly at least put a stop to it. So, yes. all right, I just very 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 fast. I want to do these last two pieces of news that I have. Um, Variety.com by way of Brent Lang again. Daniel Craig back on for Bond. He has finally agreed to Bond after saying that he would quote, uh, hang on, let's see, where is it? Uh, he said that he would quote, rather slash my wrist 
end quote, then play Bond again and said he would only do another film, quote, for the money, end quote. So apparently the studio paid him handsomely. Also, it looks like um, Danny Boyle is going to direct. So that's that. Um, also from bloodydisgusting.com by way of John Squires. Um, Bruce Campbell says he's officially, quote, retired as Ash, end quote. And that sadly, that folks yeah so basically bloody disgusting found out that uh ash versus the evil dead on stars was was getting canceled uh after three seasons and so they decided that they were going to start a fan campaign for netflix to pick it up and uh carry it on and bruce campbell literally caught wind of the article and (laughs) says and then said uh this is the actual tweet that he sent out big props to fans for the effort, but I'm retired as Ash. Hashtag time to fry some other fish. So, yeah. So that's done. Bruce Campbell is now officially done. And that is all I wanted to say. That is the end of my news. Is that the end of your news, sir? Yes, it is. But I do want to say that actually hearing that the show's over, because uh, I heard about Ash versus the Evil Dead getting canceled over the weekend, this past weekend, and... It's such an entertaining show. I'm not caught up with this current season, but man, by the end of season three, I was just ready, you know, ready for some more. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping they actually end it. You know, they they were ready for this and they had a, you know, an idea for a good ending or a satisfying ending. Agreed. That was the only thing I was really concerned with um, as a fan of Ash versus Evil Dead as well. I've only been, I'm only at the second episode of the second season right now, so... Um, I'm coming in late, but, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just hoping that they have an end and it's not some cliffhanger or just some kind of like perpetual ash will never be able to figure this out. Yeah. So I guess that is that next week's, uh, next week's episode, uh, we are going to be doing news again. So, uh, no bonus, no bonus segment per se for next week. And I guess we got some movies to get to, don't we, sir? We do indeed. Then let's do it, folks. It's. All right, and we've got A Quiet Place, Chappaquiddick, Isle of Dogs, or if you put it fast together, it's I Love Dogs. (laughs) Uh, And then... uh, we might, uh, you know, well, are you going to talk about Super Troopers 2, Tim? Because I was bad and I didn't get around to seeing it. And apparently that was a good thing. I don't, or, or... I don't want you to see Super Troopers 2. <laughs> because you're not, I mean, for one thing, you're not a big fan of the first one. I was, look, I have nothing against pot humor I and, and or slapstick and everything like that. I, I, I generally really like that stuff. But the first Super Troopers movie, I don't know, it just it just didn't really do it for me. I So I get the meow thing and, and how they miss, the, how they're always pulling pranks and mistreat the heavyset guy with the mustache. Can't think of his name. Farva. Farva, yeah, Farva. And so, you know, it just seems... Like, it's more of the same. They looked like they put every single funny part of the movie in the trailer. I watched the full extended trailer. I got caught watching the trailer at the movie theater a week or two ago. So, it just seems like it's literally the same thing again. Uh, um, Just 10 or 15 years later or whatever. So, uh, yeah. If you're a fan of it, hey, more power to you. I'm glad you love it. I'm glad that's you know that you've got that that you can share and, you know... 
but yeah, it just, just didn't do it for me. So, Well, I can do a quick review of Super Troopers 2. Since you haven't seen it, it's it's a waste of time. Okay, well then just go ahead and let, let's knock it out of the way. Let's let's do that first. Get it out of the way now. Super Troopers 2! Uh, two, three, let's do it! They've been waiting for a second chance. Waiting for their country to need them again. That time is... Meow. What do you guys give me if I kill that bird? Farber, that's a bald eagle. Get away, baldy! Guys, what do I win? A one-way ticket to hell. It turns out the French-Canadian town saint georges du laurent is actually on American soil. You'll be phasing out a Canadian Mountie unit. Best behavior, boys. Not our idea of a good time either, fellas. Personally, I'd rather fuck a moose. You would need a ladder to do that. Wow. Let's give a big Canadian welcome to the Vermont Highway Patrol. Come on, guys. They've come up here to tell us how great it's going to be for all of us to become Americans. I pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. This is happening. Est-ce que vous savez à quelle vitesse vous allez? Do neither of you speak English? I do. We would like to... Eat your papers. Can you show me your party papers? This time everything will be by the book. Everything. What the fuck are you guys doing? Great Tim, Morgan's ghost. What can I get for you guys? Whole beer? Liter of cola? What did you say? Do you want a liter of cola? Canada's pretty awesome. With all that wonderful build-up, um, I, I hope there's nobody dying to listen to our or my stellar review of Super Troopers 2, because you're not going to get that at all. Super Troopers, the first one, came out 16-ish years ago, and I rewatched it on 420, or it was sometime last week, so a little bit before 420. But I watched it, I always had great memories of certain scenes from the movie, and so I, I just haven't seen it for quite some time. I mean, I was probably in high school, maybe, the last time I watched it, I can't remember but everybody remembers or looks back fondly on Super Troopers. So I thought, what the hell? I'll give it a watch. The opening scene, best part of the movie, it's hilarious. The following hour and 35 minutes, pretty much pointless, except some pretty solid humor and pretty solid, I guess, farcical comedy peppered throughout, which I guess is enough for people to reference and to quote, I guess, amongst other fans and their friends. But it's not that great of a movie. So I was really geared up for or intrigued to seeing Super Troopers 2, uh, because I know it does have a huge fan base, and a lot of people were supporting the making of Super Troopers 2 because it was like on Indiegogo or Kickstarter. So I, I thought, you know, it's been 16 years. They were always talking about Broken Lizard, the comedy troupe who made this movie, as well as Club Dread and Beer Fest. They've always wanted to make a sequel to Super Trooper, so they must have a great idea of, for a story. They must have a script in mind. They must have this thing mapped out so they can do no wrong. 
And, you know, even if they had a budget of $5 million, you know, they, they could still make a pretty solid follow-up to the movie. Well, with their Kickstarter campaign or Indiegogo campaign, crowdfunding campaign, the movie, you know, they, I, it was like, what, $13 million, $14 million or something like that? They raised a shit ton of money. So instead of putting that those funds into a movie that actually worked... They thought bigger would make the movie better. We're going to use a live bear in it, and we're able to have this explosion. We're we're able to afford this car chase scene. It's going to make the movie better. That's not the case. Less is more. If you have less of a budget, if you have more restrictions, that's when the creativity comes out. And so it seemed like they had too much time to overthink some of the scenes and overthink the dialogue, so none of it was necessarily funny. The story of Super Troopers. I saw this movie less than 24 hours ago, and I'm finding it incredibly difficult to really remember anything, but more importantly, remembering the plot. Uh, For one reason or another, part of Vermont was taking over a part of Canada. Therefore, as the Vermont police is moving in, if we remember the ending of Super Troopers, they lost their jobs. So by this time, they're not working for the police department. I think they're building houses. I cannot remember. Because as well as the first one, this movie is over an hour and 40 minutes for some god-awful reason. I don't know why. Brian Cox recruits them again to work for the Vermont Highway Patrol, I guess, to work with the Canadians to build up the police force within this Canadian-occupied area that's becoming the United States. And within this, we meet a colorful cast of characters, like the most stereotypical Canadian police officers you could find. You have the French Canadians. Uh, You have Rob Lowe as the mayor of this Canadian area, I guess. So the movie just reeks of ideas and some really nice situational comedy that it doesn't actually explore. And it doesn't even seem like they attempted to even explore it. The jokes may have been funnier 16 years ago, which is maybe when this script was first written, but the jokes actually come across as flat and lazy. Jokes that you've heard before. Physical gags you've seen before. I mean, we've seen what Jackass has been flipping people over in porta-potties for 20 years now. I mean, it's not that funny anymore. And they have all these setups. Like, a lot of their physical gags have all these setups, but there's never a satisfying payoff. I'm surprised with all the hype and the time that was put into this sequel. Jay Trangeskar, I'm not sure how to say his last name, Chandreskar. He plays the main ethnic cop. Uh, He's also the main writer and director of this film, as well as the first one. He just failed completely to competently shoot a structured comedy. The only comedic moment that really comes to mind is the Rob Lowe penis punching bag moment. There's a scene when Rob Lowe playing this crazy ex-hockey French-Canadian mayor, he's standing next to this hulking, flamboyant, I guess, stripper guy. Again, I cannot remember the context. Oh yeah, they're in a brothel, legal bar brothel or something. But his cock is hanging out. It's obvious it's a fake cock. It's not a real cock. But there's this little gag here where Rob Lowe goes down to it and he starts punching it like a boxer would punch a, you know, one of those uh, boxing bags. And like it had a lot of girth to the wiener, so, you know, it kind of like bounced back and it was really funny how he was doing it. But even how that segment was shot, and more than likely 
Rob Lowe improvised that moment, so therefore the funniest part was just the idea of Rob Lowe hitting an unerect large male penis, well I guess you couldn't say a female penis, maybe a male penis is redundant, hitting a penis as if it were a boxing bag. You know, this scenario should have produced endless amounts of physical and verbal jokes, but just the funniest part was Rob Lowe's and I, again, I, I just believe it was improvised penis boxing. Now, the first movie, again, is not that great, but there are still well-executed moments that warranted multiple viewings, and again, to be quoted among fans. So I am just glad that I didn't donate to this Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign, because I would have been incredibly disappointed. I give this movie a 1 out of 5... Matt, I'm glad that you didn't see it. If you had to pay money to go see it, I would have refunded you however much money you spent, as well as gas money. Damn. Well, all right then. Yeah, and I went into this movie feeling good, like how one would go to see a movie like this, you know? So I was its target, and it still failed. All right. Well, I guess that that answers that. So... Where do you want to go from here, sir? We still have A Quiet Place, Chappaquiddick, and Isle of Dogs. How about Chappaquiddick? My dad once said to me, Tragedy has a way of defining people. Cripple some people till they curl up into a ball. Oh my God, what have I done? Hello, Mr. Kennedy. Hello, Mr. Kennedy. Dad? See, so you're still the man with all the influence. What the hell happened, Teddy? It was an accident. I was driving. A story like this could dominate the headlines for weeks. Chief, we got a body. A dead body holds a lot of secrets. Those can be the difference between guilt and innocence. So we need to be in control of them. There's not a lot of senators that are charged with manslaughter that go on to become president. What do we do to help the senator? We tell the truth, or at least our version of it. You've been diagnosed with a concussion. I haven't examined the patient yet. These theatrics are not going to hold up in a court of law. Get the hell with you guys! I'm not going to be the one defined by my flaws. I want to be a great man. I just don't know who I am. All right, yeah, so, Chappaquiddick. Uh, 2017 American drama films directed by uh, John Curran, written by Taylor Allen and Andrew Logan. Film stars uh, Jason Clark as Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy and Kate Mara as Mary Jo Kopechny, uh, along with Ed Helms, Bruce Stern, Jim Gaffigan, Clancy Brown, and Olivia Thurlby in supporting roles. Uh, as basically goes, th- the plot goes through the events of the 1969 Chappaquiddick incident and its subsequent, um, its subsequent immediate fallout within the next week or so. So, I, was uh i i am a student of history i am also someone who um has generally kept up with politics in the last 20 years basically and so i am familiar with ted kennedy and his political career and to a certain extent the events surrounding chapquitic itself 
For those who are not familiar, um, Chappaquiddick is an island. Um, and while on this island, uh, Ted Kennedy was driving a vehicle with a former staffer of his brother's named Mary Jo Kopechny. They go off of a bridge, upside, land upside down in the water. He survives. She doesn't. Um, and he takes nine hours to report her missing or to report the accident and she died. So, um, and, and there's a lot of conspiracy theory. There's a lot of other stuff going on and everything, um, in terms of, you know, what really happened and why she actually died. So this movie, this movie really kind of takes a, no, it, in terms of the incident itself, it doesn't really pull any punches, but it doesn't exactly, um, throw all the right punches to keep the metaphor going. And that's a little bit, that, that's kind of the movie's undoing in that regard. Um, but they still show a very complex human being in the characterization of Ted Kennedy. And Jason Clark does a fantastic job. Uh, someone I was blown away by, I was literally blown away by the performance was Ed Helms. Uh, he plays family friend, uh, technically a cousin, but considered like an adopted brother, uh, Joe Gargan. And, He's kind of like the moral center to the film. And, uh, you know, for, for most people, their knowledge of Ed Helms is the office or more recently the, the last vacation movie. Uh, you, of course, if you aren't a big TV watcher, then of course you'll remember him from the hangover trilogy. So. When you see Ed Helms coming on board and just the performance he pulls off, what just where the fuck did that come from? It's outstanding. Um, I really liked how the movie addresses, um, what it is that makes Ted Kennedy tick the way that he does. Again, even though it doesn't always ask all the right questions and on some of the things that it does say, it teases some reasons and it teases some things that were, that were possible in going into the accident itself. Um, but there, there is no question walking away from this that in this incident, in this instance of what he did, he was a piece of shit. Kennedy was a piece of shit. And, um, and, and yet, despite his being a piece of shit, as a human, you still kind of feel for him a little bit. And, and you should, because if you think about the pressure, the immense pressure, he is literally the last. He is the remaining Kennedy son. He is the legacy. That's what they have left to pin their hopes on. Um, his oldest brother, Joe, died a hero, you know, in a plane crash, uh, in like World War II or whatever. Um, his next brother, JFK, all right? I mean, President of the United States, Camelot, the whole nine yards, American royalty is as much as we can make it. Um, you know, next brother in line, Bobby Kennedy, 
again, on track to change the world as the next president and dies. And here we are. And all in, you know, and, and the last two brothers or the previous two brothers are, are within the same decade, five years apart. Um, and so you have this guy who's struggling to be defined, to, to define himself against the backdrop of his family. Um, and yet we also see just exactly what the political machinations of this ultra powerful family are. And I mean, they basically helped this guy get away with murder. And while I won't say first degree murder, um, I, I mean, manslaughter is generous. And especially with the things that they tease about the incident itself that they don't go into that I wish they would have, if you're gonna, if you're gonna at least tease it, then you should explore it. Um, there's some questions that are just un, just simply unanswered. Uh, and the biggest one is that they don't ever get to, which is one of the reasons why people have gone back to this again and again over the years is how the fuck did he get out of the car? Um, because all the windows were rolled up. The front and rear windshields were in place. All of the doors were closed. So how the fuck did he get out of the car? Um, and they don't answer that question. And yet they blatantly make sure that you can see that you are asking this question and you're going to repeatedly ask this question again and again. Uh, at the end of the day, the character work, uh, is, is just amazing. The setting is good. Uh, the cinematography though is while, uh, I think they do a really good job of, of using the cinematography and the shot selection to keep things in the time period and then the framing of just centralizing it around Ted Kennedy. Um, there's not really a whole lot to it. So they, they're definitely relying on the acting and the storytelling, which I think overall does a good job. Um, I really, really like this movie. Um, I think that the biggest flaw is that while it shows what Kennedy was going through and what he was really made of, they also didn't ask enough of the right questions, um, to make, to truly, to truly make it worthwhile. But this is still a great watch. Um, and, I give this a 4.5 out of 5. Absolutely fantastic movie. And as it stands right now in the middle of April, I wouldn't be sad at all if Ed Helms got some kind of Golden Globe nomination uh, or something like that because what the fuck? Wow, that was great. Uh, Tim, what do you got there, sir? Well, good. I'm actually I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. And I wasn't expecting to enjoy it so much because or as much because um, of certain things that I've read over the years. It seemed like a lot of people felt like the movie was missing something in the historical accuracy department that they were so hung up on it that I guess they really weren't paying attention to, especially the main performance. And holy hell, didn't he do a great job as Ted Kennedy? And wasn't that makeup fantastic as well? Um, and I thought the supporting cast was great, even right down to Mara as uh, as uh, as the the victim. I guess I could call her that. But a perfect movie this would have been if the filmmakers didn't play it as safe. 
There were a number of questions I just had within the first 25 minutes, but a couple of those questions were really just nagging at me during the third act. One of those questions was that, is it obvious or not obvious enough or even just insinuating if so insinuating, they, the filmmakers, missed out on another great Kennedy cover-up that Ted Kennedy, played by Jason Clark, a well-known skirt chaser by that time, may had tried to seduce or even had an affair with Mary Jo Kopechny, played by Kate Mara. That would have been something else the Kennedy advisors would have needed to have covered up. In actual history, it is said that the Kennedy advisors did attempt to cover up any accusations that Ted and Mary Jo were having any affair by comparing the moral standards of Mary Jo to Ted Kennedy's aunt, Ethel. And then the second thing that was constantly on my mind, especially by the film's end, wasn't Ted Kennedy disliked by those devoted to Bobby Kennedy during Bobby Kennedy's election, including the Boiler Girls? which were what they called the girls that were really super dedicated to a Bobby Kennedy. And if so, if so, Ted Kennedy was disliked by all these people who were close to the Kennedys, maybe any kind of rejection was a blow to his image, and depending on his vanity, his ego as well. And the third thing that was on my mind, how did Ted Kennedy get out of the car? Was it before or after the plunge? If after, why didn't he think to save Mary Jo? If before, would that make clear his intent to kill Mary Jo? Many finely tuned character moments are peppered throughout the film that are there to place the movie, and especially Ted Kennedy, his story in a certain light, such as Ted never quite living up to the expectations of his father, played by Bruce Dern, and having to choose which path to follow after the car incident. His father lays the corrupt path playing the victim, as the moral path is laid out by his cousin, Joseph Gargan, played by Ed Helms, taking full responsibility and resigning from office. Watching the fallout between Ted and his cousin Joseph Gargan, again played by Ed Helms, come to light by the movie's end was very interesting. But I couldn't help thinking if those moments were enough for the audience to judge movie Ted Kennedy's character by the end of the film. There are a number of questions still left unanswered by both history and the movie. A number of those specific questions revolve around the Ted Kennedy's true intent that night. It is said that when Mary Jo's body was found, she was wearing a blouse, bra, slacks, but no undergarments. For being the staunch Catholic that she, Mary Jo, was, not wearing undergarments, that alone, should raise some questions worth investigating. The flick is very entertaining, but as I review it now, I can't help but to think that the movie should have dug deeper. Instead of focusing on the cover-up for the shared sake of Ted's political office run and the Kennedy image, maybe the flick should have taken a harder look at the Kennedy's negative effect on women in politics. And I'm not just talking about Ted Kennedy, I'm talking about all the Kennedys. When it comes down to it, I just think the movie played it a little too safe, but it's still a very good flick. Four out of five. Where do you want to go from here? Isle of Dogs. 
<laughs> All right. Isle of Dogs. 2018 stop-motion animated comedy film written, produced, and directed by Wes Anderson. Set in a dystopian near-future Japan, the film follows a young boy who goes in search of his dog after the whole species is banished to an island due to an illness outbreak. But perhaps you would rather hear it for yourself this way. The Japanese Archipelago. 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly the same here. Words out of my mouth. Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it, ever. You're Rex. You're king. You're duke. You're boss. I'm chief. We're a pack of scary, indestructible alpha dogs. Atari Kobayashi, you heroically hijacked a junior turboprop XJ750 and flew it to the island because of your dog. We get the idea. You're looking for your lost dog, Spots. Does anybody know him? No. no. Uh, Spots, if he's alive, may very well be living, even at this moment, as a captive prisoner. Somebody is up to something. Will you help him? The little pilot. Why should I? Because he's a 12-year-old boy. Dogs love those. We'll find him. Wherever he is, if he's alive. We'll find your dog. To the north, a long rickety causeway over a noxious sludge marsh leading to a radioactive landfill polluted by toxic chemical garbage. That's our destination. Great. Get ready to jump. Yes. All right. So, Isle of Dogs. I was not really... This is the first time that I have not really wanted to watch a Wes Anderson movie. I saw the trailer. Didn't really do anything for me. Um, and I'm like, ah, not, you know, just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of places for it to go. Thankfully, I enjoyed this movie a lot. So, um, that, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be all bad. Um, as usual, Wes Anderson definitely does his visual homework and he, uh, is on point here. Uh, the, just the, sh- the, the framing of the shots is so impeccably Wes Anderson. I'll give you a really good example. Uh, so they're doing a sumo match, right? And so you see the sumo match, they're, you know, shifting to it from on TV, and then they kind of jump from the TV to the actual thing. And yet it's still perfectly framed in a four by three traditional format due to these banners that are hanging down on the sides. And then as they go and they shift into the action of it, they zoom beyond the uh, the, the two banners, and then you go back into a widescreen format just to watch the match. And it's little touches like that that happen all the time in the film that you're just constantly reminded, wow, it's so amazing to look at. Um, I went and saw this movie with a couple of buddies of mine from work, who are also Wes Anderson fans. And um, 
And so we're leaning it, it. We were the only ones in the theater. So we're just kind of leaning back and forth talking, you know, about, and just the beauty of the film kept jumping out. Um, and I really, really liked the idea of just explaining why, why a boy and his dog, um, are ubiquitous in the, heartwarming category and ultimately the buddy film category. And so you've got this story where you've got this wonderful little, uh, you've got this wonderful kid, Atari, who's just trying to go, go and fetch his own dog. Um, there is of course a cat conspiracy that's been going on, which is kind of funny. Uh, they, they explain in the prologue of the film. But at the end of the day, you're, you know, this film has one major flaw. The flaw is there's no real payoff for this great buildup. So you've got this conspiracy where this one powerful family who's, you know, dynastic family over the years uh, has been trying to get rid of dogs for all time. And they're on the verge through their political corruption and everything to finally get it so that they can destroy all the dogs. Um, and yet, uh, you know, Atari, who is the nephew of the mayor from this particular family, he's going to the Isle of Dogs, which is a former trash, which is basically just a trash island, um, where they have quarantined the dogs. Uh, and, he goes to rescue it and, and through these actions, they start kind of uncovering the conspiracy. Well, in the meantime, the dogs are on the island and they are just trying to survive and they're trying to work, work their way forward. And of course, when they, when the group of dogs, uh, Chief Rex, King Boss and Duke, um, played by Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Bob Babylon, Bill Murray and Jeff Goldblum, uh, respectively, they decide that they want to try and get, they want to help Atari, who has come to this thing, except for Chief. Chief is kind of the loner. So they have this great setup, and they've got all these wonderful character traits in Rex and King, Boss and Duke. Um, but beyond a certain point, the characters basically don't go anywhere because the story shifts and becomes about Chief. Which is fine if, you know, if you're having a tone and the, and the story is about Chief's journey. But you can't just have all of this set up, especially using such great characters and utilizing such great actors for these characters only for them to never really be utilized and coming into fruition for the rest of the story. Combined with the fact that despite your, despite the fact that you're telling a not childish, but childlike story, you're still doing it in a very sophisticated manner. And when you have such great buildup, you also have to have an equal payoff for that. And so when you get to the third act of this film, and everything starts to come to fruition, and you're building to your conflict resolution uh, to, from the climax into the DMA. It doesn't. It doesn't do just to have things happen 
just simply because they can, and just to provide the ending that the film needs. There needs to be more to it. Um, and there wasn't enough meat at the end of that. So I was a little disappointed there. But visually, and despite its flaws towards the end, the film is just something you have to behold. Uh, I am very much looking forward. Uh, like I said last year for the Oscars, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to keep the, keep, keep the, uh, blinders off and hopefully Disney won't run away with it. Uh, or Disney Pixar. Um, but this is definitely a very good contender as, Tim had mentioned, you know, oh, I think this will be nominated for an Oscar next year for animated film. Uh, and right now I think it's a good contender. So four out of five for me on Isle of Dogs. Ooh, I thought this was a beautiful movie. Absolutely beautiful to look at. Technically, it's worth the price of admission. It's ama- some of the shots and some of the transitions I'm amazed by. There's so many moving components and obviously they utilized... Uh, some animation, a traditional hand-drawn animation, I should say, and maybe even a little bit of CGI, possibly to make some of the more uh, some of the transitions look or come across significantly smoother. It's a beautiful film. By the ending, there's a great touching moment that it kind of got me in the feels a little bit, but it, it, it warranted something more. And like what Matt was saying, the movie didn't have that punch. It didn't have that impact that I think this particular story deserved. On top of it, I think this might be one of Wes Anderson's least funniest movies. I'm a big fan of Fantastic Mr. Fox. I thought it was charming, funny, and visually uh, wonderful. And I thought the story was entertaining. It was great for adults, kids, anybody to watch it because it was a very involved movie for the viewer. This movie, not so much. The story becomes quite repetitive. You go from one beautiful set piece to another, one culture dive into another culture dive. In that aspect, the film is beautiful, but it's kind of boring and it's not very funny. Uh, Some of the jokes are are kind of childish, but it's not a movie for kids, you know? I, I I would have liked it if it was going to be PG-13. Let's get a little bit more humor that we've seen in some of his other PG-13 movies. But on top of this movie just being kind of boring, it's also the most Wes Anderson-iest movie Wes Anderson, I think, has ever made. He out-Wes Andersoned himself. And you can tell this by the trailer. Everything from certain character interactions, the framing of the shot... You know, where the characters are facing when they're talking to somebody. It's not how one would normally face if you were talking to somebody. So a lot of stuff like that. But it felt more purposefully put there for the sake of the aesthetic. And it just really didn't work for the overall story. I am landing on 3.5 out of 5. That is all going towards the beautiful technical aspects of its production. Check it out for that. Well, then that leaves us with A Quiet Place.
Yeah, I have no idea how that trailer's going to work out. But, hey, whatever. Um, 2018 American horror film directed by John Krasinski, who stars alongside his wife, Emily Blunt. Um, and basically, it all, the film also stars Melissa Simmons and Noah Jupe. Um, the movie is taking place in 2020 and there are crazy monsters, you know, crazy monsters. No one knows where they came from or why they're there, but they're there and sound attracts them and they're supposedly bulletproof and whatever. And this family has to survive on this farm. All right. So that's basically the gist of the movie. Um, all right. So, This movie, I had problems with this movie from the get-go. Uh, the trailer, I watched the trailer for the film. Again, sometimes you just can't help it. You're in a movie, it happens, whatever. Um, what bothered me with this movie was not the gimmick, but the execution. Immediately off the bat, this movie absolutely has nowhere to go. Because Emily Blunt's character is pregnant. So... One of two things is going to happen. Number one, uh, baby is born, baby screams and cries, everybody dies, so what's the fucking point? Number two, you have some form of fashion of soundproofing or sound resistance so that they can't hear you, in which case, well, everybody just lives inside, and what's the point of the movie? Um, and sure enough... It, I mean, it, the movie plays out in that fashion. Not to mention the other side of this thing is you're using kids. And the problem with using kids in movies is that, in horror movies, is that they, the trope of it isn't the problem. It's the fact that the execution, again, has nowhere to go. Because why the fuck do you need kids who are gonna do nothing but make noise? Now, I at least appreciated that the movie opens with the kids making noise and what you see in the trailer at the kid making noise, minor spoiler alert because it only happens in the first three, three or four minutes of the movie, the kid that makes the noise gets fucking eaten, yay, or killed or whatever the fuck. Um, so at least we've got that. But I mean, even then, all of the other things that happen in this film are a direct result of the kids fucking shit up in one in some form or fashion um and so i basically call this movie i don't call this movie a quiet place i call this movie goddamn stupid fucking kids colon they ruin everything um it just the whole the whole impetus of the film is not what everybody seems to think that it should be not to mention there is a waterfall in the film, and they bring this up to make sure so that they can have one form or fashion of talking in the film, so that John Krasinski is talking to his son, who's, you know, afraid, and they're like, no, you don't have to be afraid, we can talk here, the ambient, they, they can't hear above the ambient sound, so as long as you're being quieter than the ambient sound, i.e. this huge fucking waterfall, you're safe. Hey, here's an idea, have the baby there. Oh, here's a better idea fucking live there you know let's just try that on for size um you, you know again so what's the point of the movie well the point of the movie is to have is to establish a gimmick that can build tension because you have to have no sound well it works in very limited ways primarily 
any time Emily Blunt is on screen. The once the scenario, the setups for the scenarios are fucking stupid. But once the scenario is kicked off, the actual handling of the scenario is very well done. And Emily Blunt does a fantastic job. She, I mean, I really, I bought it. I believed it. I was like, wow, way, way to handle this shit. That's fucking awesome. The family dynamic of struggling with age and teenagers and angst in such a backdrop again the setups are stupid but the execution of the of the problems um in terms of how Krasinski's character deals with it and stuff like that also works pretty well except for later on um but on the whole it works well however every setup is bad for example a nail in a board comes up. There's a nail. The nail is the wrong fucking way. There's no way that the nail should be there at all, much less that the nail would would work in such a fashion that somehow the nail would be straightened up so that someone would step on the nail. Again, because this is going to set up something later on. It, all of these things are terrible. But once the kickoff happens, they're still executed pretty well. Then, and this is, I'm sorry, the big spoiler alert for the end. Uh, so let me just stop. Let me just save you a little bit of time. 2.75 out of 5, uh, mainly based on the strength of the execution of the actual events once you get over the fact that they're fucking stupid. Mainly fa- uh, facilitated by uh, Emily Blunt. So Krasinski clearly being good behind the camera. Emily Blunt, uh, great characterization in front of the camera. Made for an okay movie. Um but getting to the end, you know, so John Krasinski is, uh, said, you know, he, he sacrifices himself and it's a very stupid thing. Um, they figure out the kids eventually, you know, everybody figures out that somehow this frequency thing with the sound causes these guys fucking face plates to fall over and they're able to kill them because they can shoot them once the face plates fall off. Even though they've apparently been bomb proof and flame proof and bullet proof and everything else proof and they open their plates open real fucking wide so you can see their little ears ticking and stuff and everything. It's like and nobody figured out you could just shoot them in the ear hole. So, I mean, all this different shit, it just none of it pays off. But and and you are consider continually asking yourself so what's the point and yet individually the vignettes of scenes where tension is occurring and how quiet it was in the theater was amazing people wouldn't eat their popcorn it was pretty funny because you would be able to hear them um so the tension that is realized once you have to accept that regardless of the setup you know, the, the, the scene carries out this way worked really well in terms of the acting and the directing. So 2.75 out of five, but I, the movie is not that great guys. And I, people are finally starting to, to point this shit out and thank God bring us home there, Tim. Yeah. So I like this one a little bit more new. Um, this is a 3.5 out of five movie. It's a little overrated. I sat fourth row center from the screen. Uh, I'm talking about at the bottom of the of the theater where a lot, no man's land, you know, at certain theaters that nobody ever sits at because I was worried about people eating their popcorn because I knew also I knew this movie was very quiet and I didn't want to be bothered by people talking. It was a later movie and 
Uh, I've noticed that movie pass, you know, attracts some of the more rambunctious teenagers to these showings. So the last thing I wanted to hear was popcorn, people laughing, people joking around, people not watching the movie. But the movie is good enough, and it does things, certain things right enough to keep you interested. Whether it's something visual, whether if it's a freaking jump scare, it keeps you interested. And right there, that is enough for me to give it a 3. I give it a 3.5 because it kept me just more than interested. And I really like the performances. Krasinski did an okay job. A little too pouty as the father. That that seemed a little too far-fetched, I guess. Just withdrawing from the family because he was upset at something that happened a couple years before. That didn't make too much sense to me. But Emily Blunt and the two kids did a fantastic job. The daughter is actually deaf where she's hard of hearing. The actress is. So her performance just blew me out of the water. Fantastic work. So that's why I give it a 3.5 out of 5. I cannot stand jump scares. In this movie has jump scares galore. There's no real fright. There's no real dread. Uh, When it comes to a death closer to the end of the movie, it just felt gimmicky. It, It felt like it was there just because you needed some kind of retribution for the character and you needed some kind of a payoff. But it felt like there were also other avenues that could have been taken than sacrificing your own life. For example, the truck that the other kids, or excuse me, I guess I kind of spoiled it right there. Fuck it, spoiler alert. When John Krasinski kills himself, the two ki- he's doing it to attract the monster that's attacking the two kids in the truck. But as we know, when the monster jumps onto John Krasinski and gets him, the kids unlocks the brake, and the car goes cruising down the hill. Well, why not do something to draw the monster away, then get back in that truck, Dad, and undo the lever and travel down to safety? I mean, the kids could have held out another 30 seconds or so. I mean, you had a little bit of time. It just didn't make any sense. And then on top of it, the final moments of the movie felt like it belonged to another movie. If you know, if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I mean. It just seemed more fun, and it didn't really fit with the dramatic, very dramatic, I should say, tone of the rest of the film. Um, if this movie had consistent rules, like every horror movie, when you have a villain who hunts the protagonists down, there needs to be a set of rules, because if there's not clear defining rules as to what they can do to defeat the creature then they're outnumbered and there's no point of rooting or caring for them because they're just going to die and these rules help make the scares work these rules help create dread because you know they actually have a chance and uh, the rules aren't very consistent and they're not really clearly defined even close to the end of it just felt a little too convoluted so i'm landing on 3.5 out of 5 definitely overhyped but it's an entertaining piece of work, and the performances are good. So definitely worth checking out if you're interested. Right on, right on. Okay, well, after much ado, we are finally at the end of the movies. Uh, Next week's movies are going to be Avengers Infinity War. He was never really there. Rampage and the death of Stalin. And I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. Holy 
Jesus. What is that? What the fuck is that? What is that, Private Pile? Sir, a jelly donut, sir. A jelly donut? Sir, yes, sir. How did it get here? Sir, I took it from the mess hall, sir. Is Chow allowed in the barracks, Private Pile? Sir, no, sir. Are you allowed to eat jelly donuts, Private Pile? Sir, no, sir. And why not, Private Pile? Sir, because I'm too heavy, sir. Because you are a disgusting fat body, Private Pile. Sir, yes, sir. Then why did you hide a jelly donut in your footlocker, Private Pile? Sir, because I was hungry, sir. Because you were hungry. Music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solas. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solas. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitSwit12345. You can, of course, comment more that information super highway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or Fitness on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. And as a bonus, we're now also on Patreon. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Brian Cranston, I get to say this. Love is not as important as good health. You cannot be in love if you're not healthy. You can't appreciate it. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.